Okay, I started recording. We didn't. We didn't catch that. We were just. We were just talking really even-handedly about people who, who possibly put themselves, put themselves before others. <laughs> yes, um, we've been so, very diplomatic about it. Yeah, we definitely didn't do any swears. I think I said "crikey" and Rupert said "blimey" O'Reilly at one point. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I, I think I was just listening to Baba O'Reilly actually. My God, I never know if it's Baba O'Reilly, Baba O'Reilly, or if it's two L's in Welsh, if it's Baba O'Reilly. You never know, do you? It, it is a conundrum. Um, so yeah, this one this week has actually been really quiet for me for some reason. I've just, um, I think I just put a skirt on and didn't watch as many films as as I thought, but I did. I did watch two last time that we didn't have a chance to cover. Slash, I forgot about them. Um, <laughs> so, so from me, this is the eighth episode, by the way. This is, I've got Ocean's Eight, Eurovision Song Contest, the story of Fire Saga, and I laughed more reading up that title than I did throughout the whole film. Right. And, and I did laugh. Uh. Uh, rock and Roller, Guy Ritchie's 2008 masterpiece. Beyond the Gates, and then we both watched Cobra and Firepower. Yes, we did. Um, I suppose I should mention at this point that we are kind of introducing a, a new feature. <laughs> yes. Just to get through more movies. Uh, so it's a feature we call Two Minute Trashing, which is essentially where we will just watch take... Watch Tango and fast forward. Exactly. Um, <laughs> that so... Because we don't, we don't want to talk at length about every single film that we watch because some of them just aren't worth it. Um, it's true. It's and true. so we, we'll take, just take two minutes just to run through certain movies uh, and yeah, just cover them off in a couple of minutes. Hit the start, watch, and go, and then we're done. Boom, move on. Can not I ask you? Not necessarily because you? they're awful films, but just because There's they can be covered quickly. Say. Yeah. I just out of curiosity want to know what. You obviously had this idea because you are obviously making notes or watching a film and thought. Uh, so I just want to do. You, do you remember exactly which film that was that made you think? Basically, it's almost like the stamp of generic approval, isn't it? <laughs> it's not bad. I, I, well, it was more because I just looked at the sheer number of films that I'd watched because I, I carried over a load from the week before as well, if you remember. So I figured I need to get through some of these a bit quicker, and they're not all worth talking about at length. The ones I will talk about at length uh, will be Cargo, okay. uh, Street Kings, uh, Flight, Black Rainbow, uh, JFK, uh, The Gunman, The Highwayman, uh, and Detox, a.k.a. ICU. <sighs> really quickly, Street Kings is the one with Keanu Reeves, isn't it? It is. Is and the first one you said rang a bell as well. Cargo. Yeah, that's the one with Martin Freeman. It is. And then the other one you said towards the end, the gunman. That is the film with Sean Penn, isn't it? <laughs> yes, it oh, is. I'm going to enjoy it today then. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. So, um, well, we, we watched Cobra and Firepower together, didn't we? So we can start yes. with me. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm starting them off for those. Yeah. Where? Well, um, Firepower is. A, it's a 90s film, I think. Yeah, yeah, I think and it's yet, like three. Yeah, and yet it could could have been made at any point between 1980 and 1995, to be honest. So, um, And it stars Gary Daniels. Well, sort of. It star, really, the star of the show is Chad McQueen, Steve McQueen's son. 
Not that Steve McQueen, the other one. <laughs> not the other, yeah. Not that one. Um, and, um, yeah, so it's about their... Co- it's set in the future, 2006. <laughs> <laughs> when Love they're it. still playing the Super Nintendo, according yeah. to Chad McQueen and his family. And the Super Nintendo are known for its vector graphics, of course. <sighs> it's astonishing, isn't it? Because, yeah, like, why so are much that scene. Oh, and they're God. sitting on the most ridiculous couch I've ever seen. Yeah. It's like a it's like a curled hair or something. It's weird. <laughs> it's so true. It is like that. Yeah. It's like, you think, oh yeah, you create the crash over. Just sleep on the. Ca- oh, hang on. <laughs> hang on. I can't really lie on this. It's too thin. <laughs> it's, it's too thin, and it's in a massive curl. Um, <laughs> yeah. So anyway, so that firepower. Yeah. So set in the future, and they're trying to basically this ultimate warrior. What's his real name? James. J- James Helwig. Yeah, so uh, he's a big bad guy, and he escapes custody, and they they basically have to go and get him back. So they do this obviously by going to this club, this underground they, club. They call it like it's almost like it, it's a tie into a previous one we talked about called Jungle Ground, where they they call it like the Hell Zone, don't they? Oh yeah, it's of course, like the a whole zone. section of the city, like which is supposedly like walled off and it, like. A place you'd never want to go, sort of thing. But just the roads just go into it. There's nothing yeah, stopping not like people from just driving. Off. There's no like gate or like police presence. It's just like you just drive across a bridge and you're in this supposedly like amoral, unregulated zone, which people can just freely drive in and out of. What we know is just an industrial estate outside my stick. <laughs> uh, so yeah, they go and they go to this club, and the way they get to i don't know they do the investigation they, the way they want to get to ultimate warrior is by um join joining as fighters in this kind of death arena thing and that's it really so it's just really an excuse for a load of like fights uh, in an arena before they get to the big bad guy yeah um the thing is the problem is really Gary Daniels' hair. I know. Gary Daniels' hair is staggering in that film because it's it's long, it's like shoulder length, possibly even longer. But he's it's really really tightly swept back. So like with the and hair like gel, gel yeah. the front, yeah, yeah. And then but then once it's once it emerges from like the bobble sort of thing, it just it just plumes out like a, an enormous cloud of hair at the back. It's so it's so good. <laughs> Um, and of course, Gary Daniels is really, really ripped and solid and can actually fight. And then you've got Chad McQueen, who's just sort of slightly out of shape, looks looks like Mickey Rourke in Barfly. Uh, and yeah, and but they're both meant to be kind of equal fighters. It's like, yes. Yeah, it, and it's like clearly when you see Gary Daniels in those, because there's a lot of just Gary carrying the fighting and they're against people called like the Viper, the Warlord and all that sort of stuff. And obviously, um, Gar- um, Ultimate Warrior's character is called the Swordsman, even though like when he gets a sword, he's actively average with it. Yeah. It, it would make more sense if he was called the Hammer. Um, because he would his, with his physique, because he is a huge, mm. it would be much more threatening and make more sense with his build. Yeah, he could be but called if, the Hammer, the Sledgehammer, but instead, Gary Daniels is called the Hammer. Yeah, because his name actually, is actually Sledge. But that doesn't <laughs> make sense either. Because, <laughs> because Gary Daniels is quite sleek, and he's got he's more kind of he's got more guile. He's not really a hammer, so that doesn't make sense either. Anyway, so it's pretty bad. Is but it's got loads of action. Loads of like one-on-one fight scenes, 
and that's fine. Some of the and some of the fighting's pretty good, just not when Chad McQueen's on the screen. You know, looking like Michael Madsen, complete with forward neck carriage. There's, yeah. there's, yeah, it's um, it's that, that was what I was going to say. It's a very marked difference in quality when you see Gary Daniels, who, in all fairness, in every film we've seen him in, is a capable fighter. And you know, when it when it's filmed well, that really comes across. But then, of course, when he leaves the ring and Chad McQueen comes in, it's just it's just like a sort of a slugfest. Yeah, like, and and he wins against people you think you would not win that fight. It's um, um to its credit, it has one quite good twist in it unexpected moment which does make keep it interesting to the end yeah mm. uh, to the end when aren't they like walking around a building and then all of a sudden they're on a roof which yeah. seems to be yeah, like yeah, a running in... theme in films we watch <laughs> they're inside a building like deep inside a building and then he walks through a door and suddenly he's out on the roof it's like there was no <laughs> there was no moment when he went up any stairs he came in through the basement anyway yeah yeah uh, uh, but a good, decent action film. But yeah, it's, yeah, it's enjoyable. It's enjoyable when you watch and just think. When you kind of break the plot down, you think, why, why, when they have to join this underground fighting circuit, why didn't Chad McQueen just pose as like his manager? Yes. It, well, like, but there's a lot of questions. But yeah, it's decent. And like you said, there's a decent little moment in it that kind of is very unexpected. And then, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a decent action film. Classic PM Entertainment. Um, and then we watched Cobra. With Sylvester Stallone, yes. which um, is obviously a bit of a cult classic, I suppose, um, which he plays a ridiculous, <laughs> he is a cop, but he's like a kind of rogue cop, isn't he? And they yeah. bring in when they need to just, you know, when the dialogue is done and they just need someone to take action. In fact, um, if he was Irish, they could have called it Rogo Cop. <sighs> if only. Drink that in. Um, yeah, so uh, I did watch a film in which he is meant to be Irish, American, because um, his name's like Malloy or something, and it's like, mm, yes, I'm not sure. <laughs> I'm not it's sure like a... line really, really <laughs> comes across as classically Irish. Anyway, um, so so it's, there's a there's a hint of Death Wish going on in the kind of lamenting the police protocol and like saying, oh, you can't, you, you can't. You can't speak to these people. You can't have any kind of diplomacy or anything. You just got to shoot people. So, but at least he is a cop, I suppose. So, um, but yeah, it's the plot seems mostly driven by the incompetence of the police. It's standard in eighties action films, isn't it? Mm. Um, this was eighty six, and um, yeah. So the basic story is that Brian Thompson is, I guess, he leads this. Um, gang like of cults sort of yeah cult of like social darwinists who believe only the strong should survive which gives them an excuse to just go around murdering people really causing chaos yeah and and like clinking axes together and stuff in a warehouse which yeah. i i gotta say that this film when we watched it um and obviously we'll talk more about it but when when I, we were watching it, I said, this feels like it's been really cut to an inch of its life because it shows these like businessmen <laughs> clinking axes in a, in a warehouse. And it shows that scene multiple times as if this, this new world order is like a real genuine, like worldwide threat. And yet there's no one seemingly at the head of it. And, and they, mm. and they, um, their kind of motivations are like really, really just appear to just be killing people. And there's no real reason for it. Uh, and then when I went online, I was reading about it, and I'm to be apparently 40 minutes were cut out the film. Whoa! So it's it's really been hacked up. 
I'd love to see that. It'd be amazing. It'd be like, yeah, it'd be like heat or something. I'm sure, it'd be just as good. Um, it is interesting that in Cobra, um, Sylvester Stallone's character does operate basically as judge, jury, and executioner. And then, of course, he went on to play Judge Dredd, which is, and Judge Dredd, of course, is satirizing that the precise kind of culture that Cobra espouses, if you like. Mm. So that's kind of interesting. I can imagine that was lost on Sylvester Stallone somewhat. <laughs> so I don't think he, yeah, I don't think he really had that in mind when he signed up for Danny Cannon's Judge Dredd. Um, <laughs> but the action scenes are pretty good, and there's some good stunts. And, uh, and quite a good sense of peril, I suppose. And Brian Thompson's really scary in it. He is a threatening man. He is a swatting in that film as well. Um, <laughs> but he's just a really good... We've talked to him a few times in the, in, in the previous podcast. He's just a really good screen presence. Always seems to be slightly underused. But, um, yeah, in this you've got Bridget Nielsen, obviously, who, um, who, who's fine. But what we kind of picked up on were just the, the constant irritating quirks uh, that Sylvester Sloan's obviously given his character for no real reason, and and how kind of how how it would just cut to him doing something like quite childlike and irritating. Yeah, like cutting a pizza with a pair of scissors, or putting his newspaper into under a barbecue. It's like what? What are you doing? And, th- and then when it cuts, and then or like they stop for like a scene that does not need to be in the film and yeah. in, in the diner when they've got Bridget Nielsen, who's like been attacked by this guy and they're trying to get it to like a safe house. Yeah. And as they're driving out, they stop and there's just there's so much product placement in that film, but he's just, it just cuts to him over like playing with toys by a stall. Yeah. It's like, it, these are kind of quirks in lieu of actual characterization. And they, it's like, <laughs> I think I said at the time, it's like they made the film realized that he was complete blank slate went back in and just inserted little quirks as if to that would somehow flesh out his character but it doesn't yeah it's not that it really matters because you know he's just a guy with sunglasses and a burnt match in his mouth um okay. apparently did um inspire to an extent the um ryan gosling's character in drive apparently I know that Nicholas Winding Refn and Ryan Gosling were big fans of Cobra, apparently. So. I would dis- I'd be quite happy to describe both characters as a blank slate. Yes. yes. Yes, I would go that far. Yeah. I think maybe Drive could have done with more scenes of someone cutting pizza with scissors, to be honest. <laughs> yeah. If there's not, at no point does, does he put loads and loads of ketchup on his fries and then make a bad joke about it. So, yeah, yeah they missed a few oh. tricks there. Yeah, they did, didn't they? Um, <clears throat> Before we get stuck in, I'll uh, also mention that I did watch Red Dragon um, because you mentioned it last time. Yes. Um, uh, yeah. So obviously I'm I, I'm very familiar with Manhunter. I, I do like like it a lot. Man, Michael Mann's Manhunter. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I, I mean, it's still gripping because it's such a good story. I just think it's a really, really good story. And I, I don't think you can go wrong with it. I, I think that Brett Ratner is a bit pedestrian as a director, to be honest. Uh, but I thought it was a bit of a blessing in that film because there was nothing flashy and, and modern. Yes, I suppose it so. Like so pedestrian, it was just like letting these very capable actors act. Yes, yeah. Um, <clears throat> but uh, yeah, I do feel that almost it, it's pretty much a shot for shot remake of Manhunter. Do you, actually, do you see what I mean? That if you watch them far apart, you you can yeah. they, how they would meld in my mind, like they do. Yeah, like... oh, definitely, because because it's <laughs> so similar. The, the the major detour really is the ending and 
I don't think either ending of Manhunter or Red Dragon is particularly good, although Red Dragon is closer to the book. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, I, I think the the bit that annoyed me more, I could get over the, the editing, I was fine in the end, so that's good. Um, but I couldn't get past Danny Elfman's bloody awful, cheesy, overdramatic music. It was just, <laughs> oh, it was just awful. He was, he's a wrong choice for that. I mean, Danny Elfman's known for, he, he's very expressive orchestral style. Like, obviously, he's worked with Tim Burton and people like that a lot. I don't think he's got the subtlety or the moodiness. Uh, Yeah. And, um, yeah, and and you can feel the way that they're really shoehorning Anthony Hopkins into it as much as they possibly can, because obviously (laughs) it was made after Silence of the Lambs was such a massive hit, and they obviously wanted to, like, put him in as much as possible. But it does have the unfortunate effect of making Will Graham um, look a bit useless because he's, because of course in Manhunter, he goes to Hannibal Lecter like once um, and it's very brief, but yeah. then in, in this, cause they want more Hannibal Lecter, he keeps going back to him. So basically he doesn't work out anything on his own. He keeps going to Hannibal Lecter and saying, can he, can he just kind of, just push me along the path a little bit further, please. <laughs> <laughs> and Hannibal Lecter's like, are you, are you sure you're a detective? Yeah. Well, yeah why have you, have you bleached your hair? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, no, no reason. No, no reason. Yeah. But they, I think it always helps that they got a good cast. So, um, yeah. Yeah. It's, so, yeah, no, I'm glad you enjoyed it. Cause, uh, but, yeah, I think... With that film, like you say, because it's such a shot-for-shot remake, you basically choose the one you like and stick with it. And that's I think that's it. And I, I mean, I'll always love Manhunter, but I don't mind that it's effectively remade in Red Dragon because I don't care if something's remade. It doesn't no. bother me. It doesn't you change the original. No. I can. What I can do is just watch the original if I want to. Yeah, it doesn't it doesn't delete it? You see from yeah. history, so you can just watch oh, it. All right, yeah, it's interesting. <coughs> some more uh, yeah, so that was that was that. So yeah, we should get stuck into some of these. <coughs> okay then. So Films. I'll um I'll kick off with um, Ocean's Eight, uh, which I watched. Oh, yeah. It's about three weeks ago now, actually, because I forgot about it. Um, so yeah, Ocean's Eight is is effectively a you know kind of like um kind of like the sort of new Ghostbusters, like a, a modern female led um kind of retread of a previous film effectively so you've got it although they kind of play along with the oceans it was 11 12 and 13 uh, uh sandra bullock plays the uh, danny oceans uh, sister and gets out of prison puts the gang together for a heist effectively and there's not really too much to say about it because it's i'm not really a massive fan of it all seems very light-hearted and the same thing in this one applied to how I felt about Ocean's Eleven. I've seen the other ones. Ocean's Eleven is one I remember most. It's mm. just it just seems like a lot of people having a bit of fun. And I've never it, seen an Ocean's film. It's this you, you can watch them if you want, but I'm not going to stop you. But it's it's like you, uh, I remember watching the time, and it, it's all about it's a bit mo- money-ish. You know, it's all about like getting money and everyone looking awesome in suits and and like oh, there's Matt Damon. Oh, there's um bloody what scott khan <laughs> you know there's just rapid and it's all about like they come across they're obviously all seem to be friendly in real life and it's it's good fun but it's like they have a plan they they plan it all out it's all very slickly shot and then something will go slightly amiss they'll get around it and then at the end 
everyone's happy. That happened in 11, 12, and 13, and it's it's what happens in Ocean's 8. They they have a heist involving um, some jewellery, involving some ridiculous, some ridiculous 3D printing of jewels, which was just preposterous. Um, and they it's like this really, you know, ridiculous plan that relies on the eight, eight well, seven women in the heist. And it kind of runs off. There's a few little hitches, and then that's it. Everyone's happy. And it just, it's fine. It this. It's just too kind of lightweight to to be memorable. I watched it and thought, oh, you know, I enjoyed that. It was quite fun. I would never watch it again. It doesn't sound like it has much in the way of peril. No, it's too, it's the same as the, the previous social films. There's just, you know, they'll say, oh, yeah, the guy's, you know, oh, the guy's going to walk through this door at 8.02, and then you'll take the trolley off him, and then at 8.03, this will happen, and then she'll pick this up from you. And then at 8.02, he won't walk through the door, and they'll all kind of look at each other nervously, and then 20, 20 seconds later, he will walk through the door, and they're like, oof, I thought it wasn't walk through the door then. And it's that kind of level of peril, and you're like, oh, well, okay. I was on the edge of my seat just listening to that, to be honest. <laughs> it sounds a bit like um, one, one of the problems with Now You See Me as well, was that um, I mean, now you see me, it's got many problems, but yes. one of the main problems was that it had a lot of kind of very confident, smug, good looking people doing everything very well. And they didn't, there wasn't really any point at which you felt like there, anyone was in danger or anything. Um, and I know it's meant to be a bit of fun, but it's fun to have some peril on the screen. Yeah. When you look at it, it's like ev- everyone's beautiful and everyone's really quick witted. Everyone is like um, perfectly dressed and everyone is, you know, sort of snarky. You think I, this is just like a, there's nothing here. There's nothing here to like grab onto. Mm. I mean, the thing is, if they really say a trilogy like they did with the oceans, the previous ocean films, and they made like oceans eight, nine, and 10 or whatever, which would lead on nicely to 11. Now that I think about I it. I venture uh, that that was what they were planning to do. That's kind of the level that you're working at, though, isn't it? Oh, wouldn't it be cool if 10 ends and 11 starts? So when mm. when I watch this, if they did say, oh, we're actually making two other films, I'd probably happily sit down at some point and watch them, but I would never think about them ever again afterwards. You know, it's not like I wouldn't actively avoid them. They're just kind of like foam. It's... <laughs> okay. Yeah. So yeah, it's fine. It's it's completely happy. I can imagine this is the kind of thing you would check on if you were like doing something else and every now and again glance at the screen and still have a perfect grasp of what was happening, even if you okay. missed five or six minutes here or there. Okay. Yeah. And most importantly, I got to look at Kate Blanchett. Yes, she's a favourite of mine as well. I, I like Sandra Bullock as well. They could act as. Um... Unfortunately, Rupert, Sandra Bullock is slowly turning into Michael Jackson. So ah. Uh... Yeah, I, I noticed it in Heat. I was just every time she has sunglasses on, she's she's having having work done, and it's it like it's starting to show women hit a certain age, and it's about getting kind of staying on in a way for mm-hmm. I me, mean, like keeping relevant. And uh, the next one I'm going to talk about Eurovision. You see um, Amy Adams in that, who's obviously in her early forties, and she's like hasn't had anything done, and she's aging gracefully, ah. and it was weirdly refreshing to see but yeah going back to oceans oceans eight yeah, yeah it's it's fine like it, to be honest if i was at home one day and face it do you mind if i check on again i'd be like yeah it's fine it, it's in it's in a, it's so inoffensive you can just let it happen yeah yeah um yeah I, d- I don't know i think i might just stick with not watching oceans films to be honest <laughs> <laughs> i've done all right so far i've got this yeah. far 
Um, yeah. What was the first one? Like, like 2001? You've managed like 19 years. Yeah. You'll be all right. Yeah. Um, so I watched a film called Cargo, which is on Netflix. Uh, this, yes, this is the one with Martin Freeman. Have you seen it? <clears throat> no, I, I came close on a few occasions, but then never did for whatever reason. You should watch it. It's good. It's a it's a slow burning post apocalyptic zombie film. Nice. Um, it's based on the director's own seven minute short film, which lazily I haven't watched since, but when I really could have done. Um, but yes, uh, it's basically it's Martin Freeman uh, plays the father and and he's got his wife and kid with him, and basically they are. It's never explained, like all good apocalypse films, um, but basically they're driving through the countryside. It's it's set in Australia, and they're driving through the outback. Actually, they're on a boat at the start, but um, it, it's clear that it's very dangerous to get off the boat, and you can't trust anybody, and there are definitely kind of flesh-eating zombies around, and it's, it's quite slow-burning, um, uh, and it's there's really two key elements that make it stand out the it and like make it stand apart that is from other zombie films and that's it it's apocalypse so it's quite slow he's not any kind of like superhero or anything like that he's just very careful and plans well and um and yeah martin freeman is is exceptionally good in it he's really really subtle and nuanced um it, it's like there's something quite appealing about um his lack of physical presence combined with this kind of determination that he has uh, in the film. And it, it's very relatable and, and sort of quietly heroic. Um, I do love his understated acting style, which has always been there and is another reason why The Hobbit was better than Lord of the Rings. Um, Does he it, sound like he's got a cold still? Um, not so much, actually, in this. No. Okay. Um, but yeah, he's got this very understated style. And in the midst of these big dramatic events, it's very subtly done. And and a lot of, like, especially the early scenes, there's a lot of stuff with uh, Martin Freeman, like, finding, like, deserted boats and stuff like that and rifling through cupboards and drawers. And I love that stuff because it's, it's it's all a bit like Fallout, really. So That's exactly what I was going to say. Can't he get enough playing of Fallout 4, does he get <laughs> yeah. anything done? Um, when you actually break it down, the actual events which occur in the film are pretty standard for the genre, but <clears throat> but it's so well acted and well directed, and it's such a kind of unique setting for this type of film that um, in the end it's actually really really quite moving. And I, I'd say it's probably closest it's probably closer to something like The Road than a zombie movie as such. Right. Um, okay in terms of its kind of tone, style and tone. Um, yeah, it definitely owes a lot to, to the road. So it's quiet and miserable and great. It's totally miserable, yeah. Although, there's, yeah, they haven't, like, digitally removed all the green or whatever they did with the road. <laughs> um, yeah. So um, that is, yeah, very much recommended. That's a good movie. Oh, okay, then. Yeah. I'll, yeah, I think I will watch that at some point. It, the thing, yeah, see, you say at the end it's very moving. I'm like, oh, do I want to? Do I want to cry? And the answer is <laughs> always no. It's always no. So I think do I want to watch films? Yeah. Gonna, like, I, I say at the end. I mean, it is moving at the end. The actual very ending part, I'm not so sure about. I think it's there's a bit of a silly moment towards the end. But anyway, I think you'll know what I mean. But 
it up to that point it's all very very well kind of um well calibrated to be moving but also utterly miserable as well and that's on netflix i think isn't it that is on netflix yeah netflix. um i watched eurovision song contest the mm. legend of fire saga and is it called the legend of fire saga is it the one with will ferrell and amy adams anyway yeah. The story of Fire Saga, sorry, not the legend of Fire Saga. So this is a, a kind of a Will Ferrell vehicle where the, the story is that he, um, as a young boy, was um, in Iceland, obviously. A lot of the humour is aimed at the Icelandic. And he is kind of a, starts dancing in front of his family in the 70s at ABBA. And his, his family his family just see it as like a joke. And of course, he grows up to be someone who writes like Europop songs with um, Amy Adams, Who's his closest friend who clearly is in love with him and he doesn't seem to realize because because he's just so naive you see rupert he's so mm-hmm. nice and naive, not cares about the music and and they they through like a series of events manages to get on to the um the eurovision song contest and the whole film is them like an underdog sort of story obviously uh his father is pierce brosnan and i like looking at pierce brosnan and this his his brosnan saw- old enough to be his father Probably is, I guess. Oh yeah, he's in his sixties. Will Ferrell's probably like late forties, and then, yeah, I would guess that Pierce Brosnan's in his sixties. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah, I just think of because Will Ferrell's always look older than he actually is. So yeah. in this, I suppose in this year, Will Ferrell's got like long, kind of long blonde, sort of dyed, highlighted right. hair. And Pierce Brosnan's got like a big grey beard, and he's like an Icelandic fisherman. <laughs> <laughs> Pierce Brosnan's Pierce talk Brosnan's, about being typecast, bloody hell. His Icelandic accent. It it didn't convince me, uh, that, but I think I think the whole thing's kind of everyone's had a bit of fun. It's played for laughs, and there are some really funny moments in it, but it's two, over two hours long, and it's wow. like they were, it, they were, it's so sort of sentimental, and um, and there's there's like a few you know it's people kind of playing against type. I always forget his name. I think it's Christopher something. The guy who was in the guest Matthew something. Um. I know the one you're thinking of. What's yeah, he's, he's in Downton yeah, Abbey. Yeah. Uh, so there's not a few. Bad. He plays like yeah. a really camp kind of Russian. Again, I'm not entirely convinced by his accent. But the, whilst the film is like a totally generic throwaway kind of, like some funny moments, check around the background kind of film, the real issue I had, and it was so great into me, was the fact that you've got like all these nations singing their songs and you've got like Graham Norton, you know, doing the sort of narration as if it's a live show and stuff towards the end. But obviously I'm guessing none of the people involved can sing. So they are the, they are the like um, getting other professional singers in or uh, is the case with the PSB quite a few of them. They're kind of pitch shifting and auto tune in their voices. Mm. And it is grinding when you're listening to like, like they bring up, the, the people from different countries and um, you know all these different cameos and they only all have a bit of a chance to sing a song and everything is so auto-tuned to you know this kind of weird plastic perfection that you think actually the, you all a sound the same and it all sounds like slightly robotic so there's no kind of there's no humor in those songs they're too art there's so much of an artifice you can't you can't get on board with any kind of natural vocal ability nothing's impressive because everything's so treated right um, so like that kind of whole aspect of it, it, you know, when they sing in this sort of big song at the end, because it all sounds so to this like awful pop sheen, there's no emotional impact in anything. 
right. in any any of the music or any of the songwriting. So it's all done for jokes. Uh, and yeah, it was I don't know when you've got a song that features music so heavily and you're hearing the same songs over and over again mm. because they play this song like five or six times that gets them in the really? song. Yeah, and it's no just... wonder it's over two hours. Bloody hell! <laughs> yeah, yeah. And and that song is the live unedited version of Neil Young's Cortez the Killer, which is 27 minutes long. Um, <laughs> so yeah, it just um, it was just it was just by the end of it, it was just a little bit headache inducing. Uh, so. Yeah, and the, the whole, I don't know, the, the fact that, that a lot of the jokes are aimed at just Icelandic people, and yet very few people in the game are Icelandic, in, in the game, in yeah. the film, sorry. So it's not like, you know, they're having fun, it's just like a load of a load of Americans putting on bad accents and talking about mm. pixies, and you think, meh, is that funny? I'm not sure. Um, so yeah, yeah, it was dating before my eyes, and yeah, I said, the, but the worst part of it wasn't the comedy. There were a few parts I did laugh out loud. The worst part is the the production of the music. It's films you know, kind of like the ocean films where you think, are the people in the film having more fun than I am watching it? <laughs> and I think the yeah. answer to that is always yes, especially well, if it's an unscripted comedy with Seth Rogen in it. Yeah. Uh, are there moments of unscripted comedy in it? I think there are moments that they probably took a few takes. Like there's scenes where uh, they'll there'll be like a, you know a bit of dialogue. And then mm. it'll kind of cut away, and and then Will Smith will sort of just say something half under his breath that they've kept in, and that's often quite funny. And there's a running joke; they've got a song called something like, um, like, I don't something like, um, oopsie oopsie ding dong or something, which I'm assuming is some actual kind of Icelandic kind of novelty song. And when they're trying to get taken seriously, there's a guy, a big Icelandic guy, like farmer guy in the pub, which just keeps on shouting out like play ding dong! And they're like oh, okay, we'll play it. And then they finish and he's like play it again! And and they're like well, we can't play it twice. When will it be enough? And it'll never be enough! <laughs> and, and so that was quite funny. But again, there's too many, too many, when they go to America or to, I think it's in France or something that the thing's being held and there's too much kind of posturing and going around and marveling marveling at like this fame you know this like fleeting mm. fame and not enough focus on it actually being funny right so well i've no interest in eurovision song contests so i can't yeah, see myself I, I, I know we have friends and families who like i don't know if it's i've watched it once with my nan years ago and i just found it really tedious but i don't know if people watch it now as almost like a kitsch thing if i, it, like, so. I mean we, i watched it a few years two or three years ago and i for the first time all the way through and um uh, it, it struck me that like one eurovision song is funny but four hours of eurovision songs with filler is not funny anymore so <laughs> oh right yeah so i'm not sure i can do this one i'm not sure i can do a two-hour movie uh, <laughs> mm. yeah um, dan stevens was the guy by the way dan stevens oh, i think of the matthew uh, but yeah he, he's, he needs to he's do got... more films like the guests yeah, he's, that's clearly his so forte. Good. Yeah, it is a really good film. But I didn't watch that, Rupert. I watched your version. No, you did, didn't you? <laughs> did, yeah, unfortunately. Um, Admit, right. I am not yeah. the target audience. So. Well, yeah, I suppose. But still, uh, you still have the right to an opinion. <laughs> so go on, then what did you watch? Did you watch uh, Well, I'm going <laughs> to do a, <laughs> a two-minute trashing now. Nice. Okay, here we go. Here we go. Oh, uh, uh, Shall I time you? Are you going to try and do this? I don't know whether we really necessarily need to. I'm sure it'll be about two minutes. So I'm going to talk about LA Vice, uh, which is on Amazon Prime. 
which is a very cheaply made film from 1989, directed by Joseph Meary, one of the founders of PM Entertainment, as we know, Richard Pepin and Joseph Meary. Um, PM Entertainment being the spiritual success of Canon Films, of course. Which they made fun. Street Crimes, in fact. Yes, um, which is good, to a point. Yeah, and Cyber Tracker with Don, Dra- Don the Dragon Wilson. Anyway, uh, so it's about a cop called Chance who shoots first, asks questions later, obviously. He invites his old, like, captain slash mentor guy um, to help him rescue a kidnapped woman. Uh, she's been kidnapped by some pyromaniac gangster. Anyway, the partner, the old guy, dies in the bungled operation. So Chance goes to the funeral and somehow adopts this Native American guy who becomes his unofficial partner. Right. Um, there's some really dull fish-out-of-water moments there, uh, like where he doesn't know what phone book is and stuff. Um, Chance quits because the cops are useless. Obviously, they always are. And he's then hired privately to get the kidnapped woman back but outside the law chances clothes the guy's clothes are staggering in this film <laughs> spends a lot of the time wearing like a white tyler shirt buttoned all the way to the top and an oversized suit jacket with the sleeves rolled up brilliant Bloody sleeves yeah. rolled up and bottom button done up so yeah <sighs> no, you know oh yeah there more than once there is synthesized saxophone on the soundtrack <laughs> It's amazing. Um, yeah, the pacing is all over the place. Like some scenes, and some scenes seem like kind of just improvised with these really awkward silences and overlapping dialogue. And I was wondering, were they actually improvised? But no, then I thought, well, probably not. No, probably what happened is that they just they just didn't have enough time to really do a lo- load of takes. So they just cut and printed like the first one of the first takes or whatever. All of the performances are terrible. The sound... <laughs> is shockingly bad um the, the cinematography is just static and the direction is really flat um some of the lighting's okay kind of a bit of a smoky kind of seedy atmosphere uh there's too much of a convoluted plot and he's deeply unfunny dialogue scenes and not enough action so it's not really worth a watch that one that's la vice is there anyway that was two minutes and 20 so fair play with that um, but what is there anyone in this film that i would know i don't think so i, I didn't the, like normally i would like make a note of um anyone like who i recognized but really i didn't recognize anyone in there like if i hadn't if i don't recognize them there i probably i won't mention the actor's name because you don't know who it is but um yeah it's just it's just sucks really I'm just typing it in now quickly before we move on. One hour, 22 minutes. Oh, Jesus Christ. Oh, my God. Look, there's the people in this, they're not even on IMDb. It's just a load of, like, blank. No, you're you're right. Bloody hell, this film. (laughs) Look, you settle on these. And what was that available on? That's on Prime. Doesn't sound like a very prime film. <laughs> they should have like they should have all these films like this and Street Crimes on like a like a prime sort of spin-off channel called Whoops. It's like, oh yeah, just, just indeed just, PM Entertainment, really. <laughs> yeah, PM Entertainment. Entertainment yeah. <laughs> shall I shall I go into my next proper one? Because I've got obviously got quite a few to get through. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Please do. Yeah. I'll go into Street Kings then. Street Kings is available on Prime also. So this is directed by David Ayer. Um, I know this name. Yeah, he's carved quite a niche with these sort of LA-based cop thrillers. He wrote Training Day, 
um, and Dark Blue and SWAT. Um, his films tend to be quite, they, they tend to be grounded in this very brutal reality. It, while the kind of plots themselves are, are just pure fantasy, it's quite a weird mix. But okay. I've noticed that about his films. Um, he is getting more absurd year on year because he's, you know, his recent films have included the likes of Suicide Squad and Bright. I don't know whether you, you ever saw Bright, the one with Will Smith. It's Will Smith and it had Joel Edgerton in it. And I almost watched it on the strength of Joel Edgerton, but I didn't. It's so bad. It's so bad. But yeah. Um, so anyway, yeah. Um, David, his directorial debut was Harsh Times, which was another LA, kind of corrupt LA kind of thriller, um, which I remember featured a, a ridiculously unhinged performance by Christian Bale. Um, okay. and, and that was 2005. So he, Christian Bale did Harsh Times, Batman Begins and The Machinist in the same year. Which is pretty amazing. His um, fridge must have not known what was going on in that year. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, uh, yeah. Keanu Reeves is in Street Kings, and he's not—he's obviously not as full-on as Christian Bale, but he, he is an assured presence, if you like. He always is. Who's this? Sorry, Keanu Reeves. Right. Yeah. 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 So I think if he'd made this after John Wick, then it would have been a massive hit, sort of thing, because it's very much in that wheelhouse. It's co-written by James James Elroy, and it does cover much oh, of the same ground yeah. as LA Confidential. Um, it kind of I starts. Think, I think I saw this. It's two two thousand eight or nine or something, isn't it? Uh, I think it. Yes, it was about two thousand eight or nine. Yeah. I yeah, I've seen this. I think I saw this when it very first came out. Sorry, go on. Yeah, it's a. It starts off with him going into like a drugs den. Well, there's people. It might be sex traffickers, I think, because he's saving these women. All these girls, um, and so yeah, he goes in there and um, saves these saves these girls. Anyway, all it, basically he's he's being framed um, uh, to be complicit or responsible for uh, his partner's death, basically. Right. Or well, not yeah, it doesn't actually start off like that. It's like his partner is killed. And he suspects there's something uh, really dodgy. Untoward. <laughs> yes. And because he happened to be there at the time sort of thing. And it's all about him kind of like all the people around him, all the people in positions of authority, including the likes of Forrest Whitaker, obviously, uh, all saying, oh, yeah, well, you know, we'll just we'll just brush this under the carpet. It's fine. It's fine. Like, if you want to keep your job, then we'll just brush under the carpet. We've got to look out for each other. So is it it... lots of lots of scenes of Keanu Reeves, like, about to ask people above above his pay grade questions? And then they go, yeah, basically, yeah. And but then, of course, he realizes that it's pretty predictable, really, because you know where it's going. As soon as as soon as you see one person saying, oh, you know, why don't we just, you know, brush this one under the carpet? You know, everyone's involved. Um, but it's it is definitely satisfying. Like despite its predictability, it's very satisfying to watch all the pieces fall into place, if you like. And the, there are some good supporting performances from well, Forrest Whitaker, Chris Evans, uh, Hugh Laurie is pretty good at it. Yeah, so it's good performances. It's worth you a watch. You didn't Pretty, say you didn't say Keanu Reeves's name then. Well, he's fine. He's I mean that. I was just referring to the supporting performances, of course. I mean, he has got he's got screen presence. That's the thing that Keanu Reeves has got. He doesn't have 
massive talent or range, but he does have screen presence. Like you can watch him, you know. Yeah. And he'll carry a movie absolutely. Um, but yeah, it's definitely as I said, it's co-written by James Arroyd, and it does cover a lot of the same ground as Ali Confidential. So it's uh, like snap, snappy dialogue, gritty cops. Yeah, and um, and that in it almost concludes that there is a kind of need to blur the boundary between the cop and the criminal to get the job done sort of thing, especially when there are very obviously criminal cops at work. Yeah. Yeah. I did enjoy it, but I don't know. It's, it's kind of predictable. It doesn't really do anything new particularly, but very watchable. I think I am going to watch that because it has been, on the cards for a while, and I do like Keanu Reeves. And I, I started watching two Keanu Reeves films in the last month, and they've both been so bad that I've just stopped after 15 minutes. Like, I didn't even want to make it through them to talk about them. Was one of them so, the late house by any chance? <laughs> one of them was Replicas, and the other one was Evolve. Ooh. Oh, dear. I did watch the late house. That's not even on my list, to be honest. Not because it's a bad <laughs> film, just because I don't have much to say about it. <laughs> and it's a time travel movie, so I just thought... But as long as they as long as they spend a massive amount of time explaining how the time travel works, that's the key thing about time travel. Well, it was well, a real problem with the lake house is they don't spend any time explaining oh, how really? it works. So it gets it's so convoluted by the end that the big kind of emotional payoff bit I I literally didn't understand to be honest. And when you have to have it explained to you, like why something is profound, I think it loses its its, its central that, profundity. Is that Winona Ryder or Sandra Bullock in that? Sandra Bullock. Sandra Bullock. Okay. Yeah, um, yeah I'm going to watch Street Kings. I might even do that tonight, you know, because um, it, it. It, I think that's that's all I needed was was that little push. And I think that would have been before I kind of really knew who Christian Bale was. So I'm trying to think of the first time I sort of saw him because I didn't watch Batman until years later. So, yeah, I'm up for watching that. Yeah. Refresh my memory. And it's always good to see Forrest Whitaker. Um. Uh, so what have I got here? The next on the list. Oh, the next on the list is Guy Ritchie's Rock and Roll of 2008. Mm. And I watched this a very long time ago, and remember really, like, like kind of enjoying it. But Toby Kebbell's character really got up my ass and laid eggs because he, in the film, I understand he is supposed to be irritating, but at the time, like, he really just got on my nerves. And right. w- w- watching it again, no now he's he's like not just seen him in that and not understanding who he is and knowing like what he's the work he's gone on and done sort of thing like with planet of the apes films i, I watched it with a slightly different a glint in my eye not just looking and thinking i wish you weren't on the screen because you're just this irritating the whole thing about like a like a junkie with a heart of gold i just mm. I just got my nerves so the last film i saw before rock and roll the guy richie's was and i've seen it twice i watched it once before and it, it's revolver with jason statham and I remember watching it and not really understanding it and thinking I was a bit crap. And then watching it again and thinking I don't really understand this and it's a bit crap. So when Rock and Roller came on, I thought, I'll give it a goose because I don't, I couldn't remember if I'd seen it or not. Because of course they both begin with R. They're both kind of like, well, one word. I get them mixed up. Yeah. I don't either of them, but I do get them mixed up. Revolver's terrible. It's just, oh, right. it, okay. it is just Jason Statham just talking bollocks and, mm. and it's meant to be like really existential and all wrapped up and like all about kind of planning every single move and it's just a constant narration and, and I'm pretty sure the reason he's constantly narrating is because if he wasn't like it would be complete you'd have no clue as to what's happening in the film 
Um, it's like really yeah. clunky metaphors and, stuff. Just, and really, really like irritating shots and cuts all the time of like aerial shots of spinning around. Really irritating film. Um, but rock and roll is a bit more. It's m- more back to like the sort of lock stock days of just a load of like London gangsters and then just a plot that kind of goes skew if just by people getting involved and being selfish. You yeah. know, like people being robbed two or three times when the money needs to go somewhere else, sort of thing. So you've got like Tom Wilkinson in there. Um, Mark Strong, good. Uh, Gerard Butler, Idris Elba, and a few other people. And uh, obviously Toby Kebbell. And I quite enjoyed it this time because although the characters are, some of them are annoying, like Toby Kebbell, like see that he just plays like a complete burned out, like rock star junkie. And he's got this friend he keeps around and they're both just completely smacked up all the time. But, but then Toby Kebbell's character, Johnny Quid, is just constantly just going off on these sort of pseudo intellectual monologues and that mm. is what broke me the first time um and it's still great to me a little bit this time but i was paying more attention to the plot through my rotation and it's very much just a guy Ritchie film where it's yes. you know a lot of a lot of sort of snappy cats quick fire dialogue gangsters uh stabbing each other in the back but uh, london based gangsters yes yes so i think this is wheelhouse really isn't it like yeah I, I haven't particularly liked anything he's done outside of that wheelhouse. Like, I cause that's why seen those two films, <laughs> <laughs> well, when he did uh, like, cause when he did the gentleman most recently and, and that was good, I enjoyed that. And that's exactly the same sort of thing. So, you know, back in London, Going cheeky, chappy it. gangster people, completely vacuous and shallow, but kind of stylish and witty enough that it's, you know, worth it's watchable. I think, and this is what what he's good at is like um, almost like slapstick dark humor. Like in this, yeah. there's a few scenes where these like two huge Russian guys who kind of they they rob uh, Joe Butler and uh, obviously Tom Hardy's in it as well, and Idris Elba. And when they could have when they're running. Gerald Butler's got the briefcase and he's running down a train track, and and then the big the bigger guys running after him. And then he realizes the other guy's just completely knackered and he's just almost walking. And he's like sort of jogging on the spot, taking the piss. And then and then he sort of looks behind him. And then the much fitter one is just rocked up and he's really fresh. And Jared Butler's knackered. And then they go up this other run and he's like totally panicking this time because he knows he's going to get caught. <laughs> um, and moments like that are funny, like the sort of clever little set pieces. But like you said, there's never there's never enough to them to make me think. Oh, do you know what? That's like that's a great film. It's always like yeah. enjoyable, but there's, it's like when you it's all kind of service level stuff. Yes, yeah. Um, and I don't much like with I know I don't tend to watch like uh, like mob films or war films as well, but with gangster films because all of the characters I find that entire lifestyle like quite abhorrent. I I don't like anyone. So even if certain bits make me laugh, you're not really rooting for anyone. You don't care what happens to you yeah. because they're all just self, completely self-involved. Um, yeah. So yeah, but it's t- fine. It's probably one of I haven't seen like Snatch and Lockstock in, in a very long time. But I'm glad I watched this again because I thought, oh yeah, no. Once you get past these pseudo intellectual monologues, it's actually quite a decent kind of action thriller. Yeah. So yeah, definitely. And Tandy Newton as well. She's pretty. She's a pretty she woman. She is pretty, isn't she? Um, when was this made? 2008. All right. Okay. And uh, where is it available? I watched this on. I'm going to say Netflix. So the okay. Netflix or Prime. Um, well, I'll, I'll just do a quick two-minute trashing then. Of okay. Mad <laughs> Monkle, 
because this is also a Guy Ritchie film. Oh my God, yes, yes. I watched yeah. about th- two thirds of this. This is good. Okay, go on. Yeah, uh, I like all three of the main actors in this. Yeah. It's because uh, it's Army Hammer, uh, Henry Cavill, and what's her face? Um, what is her face? This has been so long since I watched this. I can't remember. Yeah, no. who's the other guy in that? Are you are you looking this up or? Yeah, I'm looking it up. I was gonna say. It's, it, this is this is the film, right? The reason I can't remember this is because this is the film I watched. Um, oh, Alicia Vikander, and so I like all them. This is the film I I mentioned a, a week or two ago, where I watched it, and then literally the next day I couldn't remember what I watched. Um. Because it was it was so forgettable, not bad, but just so forgettable that it was like just went in one ear, like briefly, gently brushed my brain on the way through and went out the other. Um, Yeah, it's it's very much like like we were saying before, the problem is that it's like it's amazing to look at. It's beautiful. Like the production, the sixties production design is is so nice. Now, but um, but it is ultimately an exercise in just kind of peril-free smugness. Really, like yeah. there isn't anything that's there's never a point. It's tiny complications, but really nothing that's ever gonna um, threaten the main characters whatsoever. <laughs> you can you the the fashion and the production design is gorgeous, and it does move along quite effortlessly. And actually, I think the plot is much simpler than it makes out, if you like. Yeah, um, because basically the three characters do this. Henry Cavill goes, oh, ho, ho, ho. and then um, Army Hammer goes, oh, ho, ho. and then Elisa <laughs> Vikander goes, mm. and that's <laughs> yeah. the film. That yeah, is the that's film. Basically, yeah. that's, I think that was, did you, that was, sounded like a recording of their um, audition. Tape. <laughs> I, I've, I've literally edited it down on my phone. I just pressed play then. Yeah. <laughs> uh, um, yeah, yeah. Like, you can, I can see why it flopped. To be honest, because young people don't have any nostalgia for the 1960s, for a start. So the target audience doesn't have any nostalgia, even vicariously. Like, young people today love the 80s because it's on the edge of their consciousness sort of thing, due to their parents, really. But the 60s, I think it's just too far away. I don't think it really means... And and Uncle itself, of course, the man from Uncle, pretty much... It doesn't mean anything to me, let alone the 18 to 30 demographic, so... It was a weird choice. Uh, I guess maybe you know they'd already made, remade the Italian job, so they just thought let's do Man from Uncle. And Don't I know. suppose Guy Ritchie had, it was was it before or after he did the Sherlock Holmes films? I after? think it was afterwards. Yeah. So maybe maybe it's like he brought that up to speed, and they're like, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. massive. Henry Cavill is huge in that film. He is wearing suits that are downplaying his, his size. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I I like everyone in it. And it, you know it's quite nice to see them riffing off each other, but it's just so it's so flimsy. It's just so forgettable. Yeah, uh, yeah, and so instantly forgettable, really. So that was that two minute trashing. Yeah. Um, I'll talk. I'll talk then in a little bit more depth about a film called Flight. This, this is the Denzel Washington one. This isn't it? is a Denzel Washington film. Yes. Have you, you seen, seen this a few times? I, I have... saw it in the cinema, and I I know watched it, and we thought watch it again. Yeah. Um, it, this is one that's a kind of like Sully. So it's about a pilot who successfully avoids like 
a massive plane catastrophe, a pilot who brings down a plane without killing everyone on board, basically, um, which is great. He's an instant hero, but they also find out that he was boozing hard beforehand. <laughs> <laughs> so it's really about that. Uh, it's a really good scene earlier on, actually, where they're like, he wakes up and, uh, you know, everyone's basically saying, yeah, you're a hero, all that kind of stuff. And then he goes, uh, like, when he's sort of recovered, he goes to meet, like, his, uh, his a union representative who's brought along, like, a lawyer. And it's so obvious what's happening, but no one's saying what's... No one's saying it yet. And it, it goes on for about 10 minutes before anyone actually mentions the fact that, yeah, you were really, really pissed when you got on that plane <laughs> to fly that plane. Um, it's It's... It's very clever and um it's directed by robert zemeckis and he he shoots it mostly quite quietly uh what spielberg calls a quiet lens so it's not flashy at all although the plane crash itself is really really brilliantly staged um i remember finding it quite unsatisfying the first time around but i now i realize that it's kind of the whole point of it is to feel that in a way because in every basically throughout the film at every kind of turn the film yeah. sets it up it looks like it's going to go down the kind of easy sentimental route of resolutions and revelations but but it con- consistently doesn't deliver them in that easy kind of hollywood way so okay. it, it kind of it has the look and feel and of course like the mega star um at the center Cast. of it of, yeah of like a a very palatable mainstream movie but it it doesn't ever give the easy Hollywood answers. Um, and it is about redemption, uh, but not the kind of air punching kind that you're used to in a film like this. And, and it does have a firm conclusion, but it's not wrapped in a bow like we would expect. And I do like when big Hollywood movies uh, kind of will confront or upset our expectations and give us a bit of a lesson in disappointment really and uh yeah so i think it's a it's very much a grower rather than a shower and i can see myself coming back to it again i may watch that with i'm just thinking though with with this from the whole premise so i am aware of how many people are involved in flying a plane (laughs) and if he was clattered to the point that he sparked out sparked out how does he he well it's not. It's not quite. He's not literally just necking bottles of prosecco. He is um, <laughs> and burping his way through the flight. Yeah. So he at the start, you kind of see him like hung over in the morning, and like I think he just finishes off a drink there, sort of thing. Um, instantly snorts some coke to get himself back on the level, sort of thing. Makes um, sense. Uh, so he's when he gets on the plane, people do notice. They say, Are "You feeling okay?" Sort of thing. Like his co-pilot's like really, really teetotal christian guy and he's like you sure you're okay but of course you've got to remember as well that he's such a like a an experienced pilot and he's got such status that he can and so confident that he can just kind of Get brush off that sort of thing oh i just bit, got a bit of a cold that yeah. kind of thing or whatever but i mean he also like when he's he's on the plane he very surreptitiously necks a couple of vodkas as well but it's oh, really yeah. interesting because of course what it does like the plane crash sequence is very detailed and it's a ridiculous thing that he attempts in order to save the plane and to stop everyone from dying 
And of course, then you start wondering, well, if he didn't have that confidence brought about by a mixture of cocaine and vodka, would he have even tried it? Would he have had the guts to try it? Or, on the other hand, might he have done it better? Is it, if, is it fa- based on anything? No. no. Which I think is definitely to its credit. As far as I know, it's not. Which I think is to its credit and why it appeals to me more than Sully, which I haven't actually seen, um, mostly because it's directed by Clint Eastwood. But I, <laughs> but, and I think that that is a real advantage to it because it can, rather than slavishly like sticking to the kind of points of reality and not wishing to offend anyone involved yeah all that kind of stuff instead it can just make him as kind of abhorrent in his behavior as it likes it can make it it can ask really hard direct questions um about you know was he right to do what he did and is his punishment fair and all this kind of stuff, but it, it's good. And it, and it all leads up to a kind of court case at the end, which does not go the way you think it will. And it's, and that's what I mean about it being like, right. Okay. He's building up to something like a big moment of like redemption, but it doesn't quite arrive in the way you expect, but in a much more subtle way. And I think that makes it a very unusually intelligent and, um, yeah, quite original in a way, um, Hollywood movie. Oh, that's, yeah, that's a good that's a good sell. That is sounding a little bit to me like film of the week, Rupert. It could be. <laughs> Scrolling down my list. Um, yeah, maybe. <laughs> um, well, I'll quickly, I've got uh, three left. So this is the, actually, I've got one left. We've already done Cobra and Firepower. <laughs> so, yeah, the, the last one I've got was one I watched um, last night called Beyond the Gates. A... Um, uh, sort of low-budget horror film. Uh, it's more of a spooky film than a horror film uh, that we watched on Amazon Prime. Amazon Prime. Uh, have you heard about this, Beyond the Gates? No, no. Um, it's it's a film that was made a few years ago, and it's but it's sort of it's set in a sort of indeterminate time. Really, it's it's about these these two brothers who really obviously haven't spoken in, in years, and they're brought together because their father has been missing for seven months. And he owned like a, a sort of dilapidated video store in somewhere in, you know, just sort of middle America uh, in the sticks a little bit. And he goes there uh, to sort of to box up all the stuff and effectively to sell off his house and, and the store. Um, so the, the film is, it's got a very kind of 80s streak running through it, but it's not actually set in the 80s. It's obviously like, it shows the store opening in 1992 and then and then the kids just turn up and they just say their father's been gone and they've, they're obviously grown up and moved away. So I would assume it's like set probably in like um, the mid two thousands or something. Um, right. So the, yeah, they, they go, what I love about this for them, the first, the whole thing about like them being in a video store, packing it up is I used to work in a video store. I love that shit. I was loving it, looking at the shelves and stuff as they were just chatting and packing everything away. What was weird though, was on the shelves are clearly loads of like blank tapes, loads and loads of and, like handwritten copies. And you think, I don't think that would be legal to just make copies and check <laughs> them on the shelves, to be honest. Um, so the whole story then is they managed to get the key to his office, which they've never been in. And he has been playing this video board game, which they reference a lot. That They used to play these kind of games like Atmosphere, you know, the VHS board games. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Which is fine. And to be honest, I was looking at them and I thought, I'm going to see if any of these are on eBay, to be honest. Um, but yeah, this one called Beyond the Gate is Barbara Crampton appears as a, in it, which is fine. 
and it's just very weird. She's it's ostensibly like um you know you want to play beyond the gates, three players set of the board, and then she just starts sort of as they're playing, saying things like, oh, "If you want to save your father's soul, you've got to find the four keys," and they're like, "What?" and and it becomes obvious that it's very much aimed at them this board game, and it's it is more to it than meets the eye. So it's fine. The setup is perfect for a low budget horror film because. Yeah. It's all it's all eighty throwback stuff. It's loads of VHS action. It's Barbara Crampton, and it's like spooky stuff going on in the house. The film does lose its way towards the end when mm-hmm. budget, the lack of budget shows. So it's all well and good when these sort of odd things are happening, and there's the a second or two of, of like CG gruesomeness followed by some practical effects. But then at the end, when it's like it, it obviously like explode a uh, sort of. Um, as opposed to getting explored, it just explodes. You you can tell, yeah, that the budget's sort of showing here. I think I enjoy. I know I know I enjoyed the film, but I would when they were talking about like their father like missing, and then they have these brief conversations like, why would he? Why would he be playing this game? Why? Why would he never let us in the office? What actually happened with our mother? Why did he turn? You know, why is he boozing so hard? they are much more interesting questions than what the film gives us when it just turns into like, well, balls to all that. Let's just, you know, let's just don't, we don't get sucked into hell. Um, they've got the, one of the guys, uh, has, has got a, the bookish sort of more sensible brother has got a total screamer of a girlfriend who yeah. sort of, um, comes to visit. And <laughs> you, when you're watching a film and you just think the second, anything, if you have, then you would chuck the game in the bin and you'd sell the house and just think balls to that. But they, they they watch they play the game over a period of days and these things mm. keep getting worse and worse and they keep saying we've got to get to the end and you think mm, do you have to do you have to there's a touch of needful things as well when they try to find where the board game comes from and it's kind of this right. mysterious character in a in a shop that sells lots of vintage items but it's good but I think it's 80 minutes it's a nice little sort of um, independent horror flick and I would be keeping my peepers out I'm pretty sure it's Stuart. Jackson or Jackson Stewart is the guy who um, directed it. And I will be keeping my eye out to see what other stuff he's done because I just kind of wish it had taken a slightly different path. But so you, do, was, you, you identify potential then? In yes. The because, again, when it's all a bit understated and it's all about these like this sort of odd, fractured, familiar relationships and the, the awkwardness of the brothers meeting up after so long and coming from such a fracturous household, that's all good. It's just when it basically the switch gets flicked for horror that you think, oh, okay, we're here then. Oh. That is slightly generic. So yeah, I, I do like it, but and I think the director's definitely got potential. So I'll be, um, and this film is, I think, from 2016 or 70, so you might have even done something else in the meantime. You'll have to, you'll have to investigate. So that's Beyond yes. the Gate. Beyond the Gates? Beyond the gates, yeah. yeah. Beyond beyond Bill Gates' garden gate. <laughs> <laughs> it's an awkward title, isn't it? <laughs> you think they just call it Beyond the Gates? <laughs> um, okay. Well, I'll shall I? I'll do. I'm going to do a few two minute trashings because I've got a few to get through. So I'll I'll just do some trashings. Okay. okay. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Aftermath available on Netflix. Uh, this is loosely based on the true story of a guy who loses his wife and pregnant daughter in a plane crash. Well, this isn't the the late 80s, really ropey, borderline 30-minute snuff film, then. No. Uh, He vows revenge against the air traffic controller whom he deems responsible. Um, The problem is, with this film, the main problem is that you have Arnold Schwarzenegger as the grieving father, uh, who is one of the most limited stars of his generation, and against 
up against Scoot McNary, who's one of the most talented character actors of his generation. So Arnie is solid and stoical, but he doesn't have the nuance to kind of act with his eyes, if you like. You know, you're talking about like um, Philip Seymour Hoffman in Red Dragon, where you can see in his face he goes through a whole rollercoaster of emotion yeah, yeah. In, within seconds. Arnie just doesn't have that. And so it's quite limited by that aspect of it. It's it's also pure misery porn as well. And and in that way, I think it's a little bit disingenuous about grief itself, about the many faceted nature of grief. The fact that it's just misery. Uh, and in a sense, it's kind of no more sophisticated really than a Death Wish film in the way that it's just like, right, I'm grief stricken. I must kill sort of thing. <laughs> really. There isn't much more to it than that. Um, and I'm grief stricken. I must Harry Hill. <laughs> yeah. And part of the problem, as we alluded to before, uh, as you alluded to was that it's hamstrung by being based on real events. So of course it needs to maintain this kind of respectful mournfulness throughout it, which, um, which isn't very helpful and or exciting. And, <laughs> It, I don't think it has anything new to say at all about the agony of bereavement. So I think it's not worth watching. It's just it's just miserable, really. Um, okay. Another two-minute <laughs> track. That was brief. Okay. <laughs> let's, let's swiftly move on to Risky Business on Prime. Yeah. Risky Business. Uh, this was Tom Cruise's breakout hit. And it's on Prime now. So that was quite a nice surprise. And on the surface, it looks like it's going to be pure, like, John Hughes teen comedy effectively because basically this rich kid is he's left alone by his parents while they go on holiday and he ends up um making this temporary brothel in his home you can imagine how that would be like an amusing teen sex comedy sort of thing but it's actually much more i was quite pleasantly surprised because it's much more of a kind of black comedy satire okay sort of in the same vein as something like heather's not quite not quite as dark but it's very cynical about American capitalism. Um, and because basically this whole, this series of events that en- leads him to having to create this brothel in his house is ridiculous, of course. But it is that very enterprise th- that actually gives him uh, a way it- to get into Princeton University, which is what his parents are like expecting of him sort of thing. Because okay. because he's been so enterprising doing this, then actually... Um, it's the thing that gets him into uni. So it's kind of ironic, really. And Tom Cruise is just pure charisma. And it's got Rebecca de Mornay as his glacially beautiful um, prostitute that he initially meets and kind of ends up putting him in this position. Um, she's the prostitute, kind of introduces him to, into this world. And and what's cool is she's she's like the furthest thing from the classic rom-com pixie dream girl i mean she really comes across as someone who can kind of read men and work them to her advantage so there's kind of this genuine sort of ambivalence about her and a, and a real ambiguity about her intentions towards him about whether she actually does love him or whether she's just doing it to get as much money as possible and the score and the best thing is the score the musical score is by tangerine dream and what is it every film you watch i, know. It's, I, I don't know how i end up it's just like <laughs> i just naturally gravitate towards them without knowing 
but it, and it's got one of the, my favourite pieces by them, which is Love on a Real Train. And I, I guess it was written for this movie because it's it, it's for a scene in which they have sex on a train. So uh, ah. yeah, so that was uh, that was a nice surprise. Risky business. That's on Prime. Um, oh, I'll do one more quick two minute trashing then. Death Wish Four: The Crackdown. Death Wish Four. Um, right, I've only seen the first Death, Death Wish, and I think you've seen the second one as yes. well, and it's just unpleasant. So yes, I thought that I'll, is right. Thought I'll skip that one. I'll just skip straight to the fourth thing. Eh? Um, <laughs> yeah. So the in what this is one, the subtitle? It's called something, isn't it? It's Death the Wish Crackdown. Four. The Crackdown. That's it. Uh, the reason being that he is he is aiming to take down a cocaine dealing kind of empire. Shit. Okay, it's a play daughter. on words as well. Yeah. Yeah. His girlfriend's daughter is killed by an overdose. So he goes to take out all the dealers and that. I mean, what makes it vaguely bearable, this film, um, is that, like, well, A, it isn't as viciously unpleasant as other Death Wish films. And it hasn't got like a really just prolonged leering rape scene in it. Does it? Um, so one sec. Does it have a scene where he he he's like an architect and he's in Boston. Yes. He's moved cities. I I saw this when I was really ill with the flu a few years ago. Really? Yeah, it's like a fever dream to you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was really yeah. ill. And I watched films. Yeah, so surprisingly tame, but that actually makes it a bit more watchable. Um, and he's also what makes it a bit more bearable is he's not just stalking the streets, just murdering dealers. He does. He is actually aiming for the top. He's going for the top guys because he recognizes that where it all starts. So that's a bit better. Um, yeah, there's some there's some kind of counter stereotype casting, which is quite nice. There's a black guy in an interracial relationship, and he is also a very kind of the black guy is very urbane kind of intellectual um danny treo pops up as a henchman very briefly um <laughs> very briefly is there uh, a scene where he has to pretend to be a waiter in like a country yeah group? i think that's the one I've seen this. Actually, yeah, um, yeah. Bron- uh, charles bronson's a bit creaky during the action scenes and they're they're pretty lame the action scenes really but the, there is an amazing scene where he single-handedly destroys a drugs warehouse which is incredible um <laughs> Yeah, so overall, it's not as actively unpleasant as other Death Witch films. It's just like a really just ordinary 80s action film, really. Um, as an action film, it's com- just entirely perfunctory. Nothing more. I, I suppose it would be nice. It's almost like the... Um, I mean, I know he was old in the first Death Wish, but this because I'm pretty sure the first was in like the 70s. But that Death Wish 4, I think, was, was 1994. Oh, really? So... Was it that late? pretty sure it's very late so it's almost like the i know they call them jerry action films now with like taken and stuff but he would have been in his like 60s and yeah. in a starring role in action film which is kind of cool in itself i suppose yeah uh yeah he you can he's feeling it he's definitely feeling it <laughs> uh yeah so i've got i, I have got a, a handful more um but so I'm just, before you go on i just want to see when it was i'm sure it was 994 death wish 4 Oh no, 1987. Oh, Sorry. right. Okay. How old would he have been, though, in 1987? Maybe he I died guess. in 94 or something. Yeah. 81, so he would have been. Yeah. 51, 61, 71, 81, 91. Yeah, he would have been like, yeah, like well into his 60s. Really? Yeah. I mean, he looks good for someone well into his 60s, but 
the end of the day, he's never really going to do that much. <laughs> um, <laughs> really quite uh, energetic, I suppose. Um, so, uh, what, how many more have you got to go through? None. You you were done, are you? Yeah, I told you. I I, I had uh, so few this week. Okay. Well, why don't we? You've seen the gunman, right? <laughs> gunman, then. Uh, oh, please what, do. What were your memories of this? My Sean? memories of this w- was I'm assuming I'm assuming Sean Penn directed it. He did not. It was Pierre Morel, the one who it... did bloody um, what's it called? Taken and From Paris with Love. Oh, from Paris with Love is awful. Um, I my memories are just scenes of Sean Penn topless and oh brilliant he did he did co-write it so there's a reason yes so he did definitely write himself i think his his kind of contribution to the script would have been oh can i take my top off in this scene (laughs) yeah what about whatever this one i i I jump and the helicopter the helicopter doesn't like kill me but i lean forward and it just catches my shirt and it just gets ripped off it just gets ripped off um, um yes. someone someone shoots me with a shotgun. I turn to the side in such a way the bullets just graze me. They just tear my shirt off. Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm, <laughs> in, this, I'm in the bad guy's factory, and then there's this rain of acid coming down. But it doesn't affect my skin. It just burns my clothes off. It's weird. More specifically, just my t-shirt. Yeah. <laughs> it leaves my jeans unharmed and firmly buckled. <laughs> Leave my wife runs on. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah so, so, so I just remember him being topless, and I, I remember finding it d- distractingly like like almost his his fitness being like a real focal point to the detriment of the action yes well uh, it's a quite a boring film to be honest Brit. so uh <laughs> the, the basic plot is that javier bardem's character he off he orders a hit on the congolese minister of mining god it's interesting already isn't it and <laughs> it basically the idea is that the shooter has to disappear immediately afterwards that is of course sean penn um it's ostensibly a response to the minister's decision to renegotiate mining contracts, but it's also Javier's way of getting Sean to leave his girlfriend so he can step in. <laughs> um, eight years later, um, Sean Penn, Sean Penn's character has a degenerative brain disease, obviously, which is a really tedious plot point. Anyway, um, and everyone involved in the original operation is basically really rich. Um, so, Sean Penn suspects some shenanigans. So he goes globe hopping to kind of discover the truth behind what was really going on with this hit. Um, and it's so obvious where it's going because basically anyone who's rich is evil and that's it. That's, that's where we're going. That's the kind of level of um, baddies and goodies we're talking about. Here. Um, yeah. Uh, I wrote in my not- notes, lots of shots of Sean's ripped bod. Um Yeah. Next to Sean co-wrote the film. So there you go. I wonder if links <laughs> uh, I part of the problem, apart from the fact it's not a good film, is that oh. Sean Penn, I think it's inherently hard to feel any kind of warmth towards Sean Penn because he is an amazing and very intense actor, but he's he doesn't have an innate charm. You know, like just talking about risky business, say, like Tom Cruise can do anything. And he'll be charming in it. Tom Hanks could play any character and he'd be charming. But Sean Penn, he's too intense and dark to have that innate charm. And then when you combine that with the fact that his whole job is like this black ops mercenary working in Republic of Congo, it's like it's not that easy to kind of relate to him anyway. 
So it's not like in Taken where it's like an, an aggrieved father or whatever. He is just someone who is a black ops mercenary doing it for money. And then he wants to get back at his wealthy employers. So it's, you know, it's hard. It's hard to sympathize. Um, Mark Rylance in this film is it's just a weird performance. He's got a mystery accent and he genuinely just looks <laughs> drunk all the time. Um, I don't know if you remember the bit where Idris Elba turns up. Um, it's almost like a cameo and he makes this weird speech about tree houses. Um, it was like it was written in another language and then they just ran it through Google Translate <laughs> going back into English. It's so weird. Um, yeah. I could watch this again, you know. <laughs> I, I make it sound much more interesting than it is. Uh, I, yeah, there's a bit where it almost turns like you think, oh, this could be quite good because it kind of turns into sort of a slightly drab version of the transporter where you've got like a damsel in distress and lots of nice kind of European locations, slightly boring set pieces, but it doesn't sign me up. <laughs> <laughs> but, but then the plot just keeps getting more and more contrived and, oh God, there's a, there's a bit, right? I realized that the whole thing about him having a degenerative brain disease, right? Right. It's just, as far as I can see for one scene where he corners Mark Rylance and he's about to shoot him, basically. And then he just spins out and collapses and collapses unconscious. And Mark Rylance rifles through his pockets and finds like a notebook with all of like with his like home address and stuff on that on there. So he can then go and kidnap his girlfriend and that. It's amazing. It's such lazy writing. Why so, don't they just shoot him? I don't know. I don't know. I really don't know. And I don't care. <laughs> so, yeah, the gunman wasn't very good. Uh, really no, that... Okay, then. I won't watch it. I was going to, but... Yeah, no. it's not worth it. No, it's... Because it's not amusingly bad. It's just bad. Um, uh, so, I'll, I'll... So, it's all on you now. So, yeah, I'm just... I'm just uh, You're just, just listening to my dulcet tones now. Listening to the vibrations of your throat. I'll very quickly talk about Spring Breakers, which is on Netflix. Um, oh this God, is, that sounds shit. Uh, it's uh, it's Harmony Kareen. Uh, and he oh, wanted, right. Okay, right. He wanted to make this kind of... His idea was to make this sensory experience. But what that really means is, is just a really highly stylized film edited at just sort of an epileptic pace. It's ridiculous. Four girls go to Miami on Spring Break. Lots of booties and bikinis and booze, and they get they get locked up um, by the police, and they get bailed out by a local gangster named Alien, who's played by James Franco. You can imagine that you're not going to watch this film, <laughs> just based on these descriptions. Um, <laughs> one of them goes home, um, but the other three become his kind of biatches, if you like, and he basically owns them, and and they kind of become consumed by the, this gangster lifestyle. It kind of made me think of like a, you know, like a cannibal Holocaust type movie. Yeah. But a bunch of naive young people, they go into this, in this case, urban jungle, and they're kind of eaten alive, if you like. So it is kind of like a, a cannibal movie. Um, but it's all a bit leering. Like there's just constant shots of booty shaking and stuff. And one of the girls is Harmony Kareem's wife, who's mm-hmm. a terrible actor. And oh. And notably absent from the really grotesque scene where the girls make James Franco suck their gun barrels 
So we obviously thought that was a bit of a step too far. Yeah, my wife's not doing that. Because <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm looking at the films he made, like Gummo, yeah. Donkey Boy, Trash Humpers. I thought he made that just, I just was surprised that would be something he did. I thought it was more experimental yeah. stuff. I mean, he's, he always, he's always made confrontational stuff, I'd say. But I this just seemed a bit, a bit shallow, really. Um I don't. I've never felt that you need to sympathise with characters in a film, but you do need to empathise. And I think when it's a sensory experience like this, I think that makes it quite difficult because, really, just m- uh, most of the screen time is just spent ogling writhing female bodies. So it's um, fine in that regard, I suppose, but it's not really deep or anything. Um, personally, yeah, I just it, the underlying story is pretty derivative, and. I personally found in terms of like uh, <clears throat> confrontational kind of like neo-feminist films, I thought that Assassination Nation is a better film. I, I don't think it's very much like it, in fact, but I just, I'm just thinking of like really in your face, like uh, neo-feminist, like aggressive, uh, violent uh, thrillers. And this was not as good as Assassination Nation, which was and criminally um, o- overlooked. I have to watch that, but wasn't Assassination Nation? You said that's not as good as Everly. <laughs> Nothing's as good as Everly. <laughs> I'm making a list of these films to watch. Okay, uh, because I do. I, like I said, I, I need to pick up my game. Because um, earlier on, I was uh, Faye's got this app called Letterbox, and she kind of keeps track of the films yeah. we watch. And I said I've only got like three, and she said you loser. And I was like, well, morning, darling. So I'm going to have to up my game now. <laughs> um, sh- uh, you, have you seen Detox? I see you. <laughs> I've, weirdly, but I've seen Detox about eight or nine times. Yeah. I, so I this... don't know why. I think it's so generic. I think, <laughs> this? And I, like daylight. And I put it on. You keep think, watching it. Oh, yeah. Oh, it's hard it. now. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, my God. So this is the 2002 serial killer thriller starring Sylvester Stallone. Also got a ridiculous cast, Stephen Lang, Chris Christopherson, Jeffrey Wright, Robert Patrick, Tom Berenger, Dina Meyer, yeah, Charles S. Dutton. You wonder why I haven't seen it nine times. Come on. Stephen Lang is in with. this film for less time than I am, by the way. I don't <laughs> <laughs> I saw his face once. I'm not sure that's true, Mr. Stallone. Um, <laughs> well, <laughs> uh, this, yeah, it's. It's weird because I don't uh, I don't know how much you remember eight or nine times you watch it, but it starts really, really pacily. Like the first act is really, really quick. And it's to sort of introduce uh, Sylvester Stallone's like family tragedy and the, the method of the killer and stuff. Um, and then he's sent to like the first 20 minutes, very exciting stuff. And then he's sent to this mountain retreat rehab center with all these other cops. And it just the film just hits a wall. It's just, it's just like what? What happened to the film I was watching? It's like they took an ex, the exciting final act from a film, put it at the start, um, as if to kind of hook you in, and then they put all the kind of boring slow build up next. If you like, it's weird because yeah, I remember this because it was like it's like him rushing and like oh they're they're at your house oh my god yeah, my yeah. wife again and, oh, no, no, no. and then it's like right come on get off the booze and then it's all this excitement and the no and then boof. Mountain retreat, and then it's just people in a circle saying, "It's cold in here." You're, you're on the cans as well. He was that way. Yeah, too many cans for me. Yeah, give my wife a clip. All right, <laughs> and it just—it's like right. So, and then it does that for about forty minutes, and then 
it, the film sort of says, "Oh, hang on, we've got we've got to get we've got to get back up again on the pace." And then sort of the last fifty minutes, yeah, yeah. And of course, one of the main actors is amongst all these like Hollywood heavyweights and great character actors is Christopher Fulford of <laughs> Inspector Morse, D. Allen Pasco. And- <laughs> <laughs> he's not well suited to the big screen uh, yeah it's it's just it's just drab really uh i can't really think of anything interesting to say about it but because you made it, it through the, the cast is good you made it and i do like films that like are, are kind of like detox i think one of the reasons i've watched this so much is because it's kind of it's so forgettable that i always forget who the one who the actual like main uh, antagonist is <laughs> so it's like like now yeah. i still don't know so i will have to like deliver it, it again. yeah, yeah. Um, but but also it's a it's a good cast like you said and i like films that are set like thrillers that are set in snow yes. so I, I do quite like that aspect of it but yeah i remember um uh, yeah it not being good it's one of those films that i i know i like it but i can very much see why everyone else would be like why are you watching that again yes i suppose what people would call a guilty pleasure I suppose not that I like that phrase, but yeah, it, right? <laughs> neither do I actually. No, um, because I feel no guilt about enjoying it because it's got Stephen yeah. Lang in it, and um, I feel no pleasure <laughs> in anything I do. Um, right, I'm I'm going to talk about a good film then, which is Black Rainbow. Now, this I don't think this is available on streaming because I watched this on Arrow Blu-ray. So this is a special moment. Um, is, this like a, is this like a an eighties horror film? Yes, late eighties, eighty nine. It was. It's directed by Mike Hodges, who's best known for Get Carter and Flash Gordon. Very different films, and this is very different again. So that's quite interesting. Um, it, it's drawn from um, Mike Hodges' experience of driving around the U.S., observing the kind of messed up health and safety practices of um, unionless local factories and power plants. So naturally, he took that real-world scandal and put it into a supernatural thriller about a clairvoyant. Why wouldn't you? Um, Rosanna Arquette is the... She's a medium, basically, and she's, she, she's on the road with her contro- very controlling father, placed by, played by Jason Robards, okay. who is making money off her gift, basically. So she'll rock up at a place, use her psychic powers to comfort people about um, people that they've lost, and they hand over their money, and it's all good. However, when she arrives at this industrial town, they actually discover she's clairvoyant. So she's not just speaking. She's not just hearing the voices of the dead. She's seeing the future. And it's and so she suddenly starts like um, talking to people about about loved ones who died. But then the person will say something like, but they're not dead. And it's like suddenly she's like, ah, right. They're going to die then. OK, Um so she starts predicting deaths at this local power plant. Um, and of course, that it means that there's going to be a big tragedy there. So the power plant executives want to take her out as a kind of way of um, not unveiling the health and safety practices there. And yeah. and Tom Hulse uh, of Amadeus fame plays this young reporter who's kind of chasing the story. And it's really about the kind of relationship between this reporter and this far this really messed up father-daughter relationship that's going on and um and he's he's really there to because he sees it as just like a bit of frippery kind of entertainment piece he's really there to mock what they're doing 
but then of course gradually he realizes what what is happening is very much real and it's 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 a really good film it's like uh it's not really quite a horror it's more of a supernatural thriller really I was say, and from what you were, what you were saying that it didn't sound it's yeah it didn't sound very horrific it was no more it's of a... not horrific it's much more kind of intriguing and and i think it, it's it's cool um the characterization is really good i like the way that um although kind of like Rosanna Arquette and Jason Robards shows they have the appearance of like an evangelist kind of show uh, actually they're kind of really dismissive of religion and spirituality because of course because it's real what they're doing they don't they don't need it to be a gift from God because it's just something that she has and I think yeah. there's some it's good the way that it it's really about the way that um tragedy is turned into entertainment and stuff and because she says at one point, um, that, well, she says several times actually, we turn everything into entertainment. And another thing she says is, if we pay less attention to the hereafter, then we might pay more attention to what's actually happening right here, right now, sort of thing. These things don't have to happen if we pay <clears throat> attention to them. You know, it's not good enough to report after the event on a disaster you've got to actually investigate and find out what's happening before disaster strikes or thing. So yeah. it's quite a conscientious film. And, um, and I think it has something to say about why people go and see mediums as well, of course, because they want the comfort of, Oh yeah. Even if they don't really believe in it, just to be told uh, their loved one is uh, happy and looking down on them. Of course, as soon as they w- have actual useful information that someone's going to die, they're absolutely horrified. Um <laughs> <laughs> There's a bit of the dead zone in it, I suppose, in the in the plot and in the style and tone. It's probably not as much fun as Dead Zone, but it's very um, it's very good and cynical in its depiction of um, it's very atmospheric and kind of the way it depicts America's fading industrial heartland. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, it's definitely worth tracking down. Um, it's a kind of smart sort of horror film. Did you um? You bought this, I assume. So, is this yeah. one you've had your peepers on for a while, or you've seen uh, it, it was just because. Well, I I saw it was um, available on Arrow on their sale, and I thought this is one I haven't seen before, and I like the talent behind it. You know, Jason Robards is really good, and it's yeah, and Rosanna Arquette's excellent. So, and Tom Hulse has feathered hair. <laughs> <laughs> so there's really nothing, uh, there's nothing not- working against it. <laughs> yeah so it's definitely recommended black rainbow directed by mike hodges so uh nice. we're doing all right for time i think we're still within the two hours so that's good yeah 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 no feel yeah. knock on how many more have you got um i've got uh maybe two or three perfect this is yeah. good we can play catch up um yes that does that is how it feels um jfk Oliver Stone's JFK from 1990. What? Or is it 91? <laughs> well, I'm going to say 91. Uh, yeah, let's say 91. Yes. Is it Kevin uh, Costner? It is Kevin Costner. And yeah. this is available on Prime, which is a nice. This surprise. was when I saw this on the shelf in the video store when I worked there. I thought, I am never going to watch that. So I'm intrigued to see what you say. And all you have to do is set aside three and a half hours. <laughs> three and a half hours? It they would never make a movie like this nowadays because it would just be a miniseries and it should have been a miniseries because it, it is, I watched it like a miniseries because it's so, so long. And um, so I, I looked into the background to this because obviously it's about, it's about the uh, assassination of 
uh, JFK. Uh, and the, the idea was that Oliver Stone regarded the, the official story that Lee Harvey Oswald was this lone shooter, um, was a myth. So he wanted to create an alternative or counter myth to that. He wasn't trying to suggest that this was a conspiracy which really happened. But to be fair, he does bring in some quite convincing kind of arguments to suggest it might have been a cover up. And in fact, since the film's release, I think there has been an investigation which suggests that there almost certainly was a cover up. There almost certainly was a conspiracy, but the details of it are unknown. So, yeah, uh, it's it's quite hard work because the script sounds like people reading wikipedia pages a lot of the time uh and it, uh, actually kind of... wikipedia didn't exist in 1991 <laughs> uh it's but like there, there's there's a definite formula to the way that the the very long scenes kind of play out so what you get is essentially lots and lots of very detailed exposition explaining like who did what to whom etc and you'll get some quite annoyingly flashily edited reconstructions over the top and then after all this, after about 10 minutes, someone will say, someone at the table will say, so what you're saying is this, and then they'll oh. summarize what's just happened. Oh, God. Happened. And, um, and so, I, yeah, he just got through Three and a half hours. Oh, yeah, it's, it's, it is quite hard work. But, I mean, I think that it's got really good quality. It's really well made to an extent. Um, and I, I think Kevin Costner's excellent in it. Like, the kind of weight of the relevance and importance is really written all over him. And you can't really imagine anyone else playing the role embodying that. I, I guess maybe Tom Hanks nowadays, but he would have been too young at the time, probably. Uh, and and it is, a, it is quite a laborious watch, but it is worth it for, like Kevin Costa does this unbroken 20 minute speech at the end, oh, okay. which is is pretty impressive because it goes way beyond just the JFK thing. It's really a call to Americans to look to their leaders with a critical eye. Uh, so I doubt it's one of Trump's favorite films, but it's quite an impressive and persuasive speech he gives at the end. So it's, you could probably just watch that online to be honest, but um, <laughs> yeah, it's well-made and oh my God, the editing at times is so irritating and especially the way the music is used because it's almost like especially during the courtroom scene at the end because the last hour is basically a courtroom scene and it's almost like oliver stone is he doesn't feel that it's interesting or arresting compelling enough just to stand on its own two feet so he needs to really really like bring like john williams score is like really high in the mix and it's just really overwhelming so you've got all these flashy images um someone talking narrating something and you've got this really abrasive loud music as well at the same time i was thinking just calm down oliver you know you don't have to you can just let it speak for itself it's okay but yes it is it's worth it as it's more impressive than enjoyable probably because the level of research has clearly gone into it and you know it's got good supporting casts like donald sutherland michael rooker obviously good um yeah, so so that's good. Um, I, again, I, I, this is one I probably won't watch. No, it, it's a long film. It is a long film, uh, and I yeah, and I, as I said, I love I do love the ending, and I like I do admire his speech a lot at the end. 
I might watch uh, that. I might yeah, I think it. it's worth it. But and it is you can kind of watch it out of context the rest of the film because to be honest, it's so barely related to all of the details that are up to that point. Yeah. So that so basically I'm recommending the last twenty minutes of the film. Twenty minutes of three and a half hours. That's totally fine. <laughs> Oh, so, so you uh, some pretty, yeah, there's been some pretty quality ones this week, not just Gary Daniels, which yeah. is good. Uh, let's do a, a quick two-minute trashing. Okay, let's do it. Street Fighter from 1994. Watch this. Uh, yes. You've no doubt seen this. Uh, a long time ago, yeah. Written and directed badly by Stephen E. D'Souza. Of yes. Of course, diehard fame. But also the last film of Raul, yeah. It is. He plays M. Bison, is it? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. He intends to take over the world by creating super soldiers, starting with Blanca, yes. He also intends to kidnap the Queen and force the Bank of England to set a ridiculous exchange rate or something like that. Um, <laughs> the whole gang's here. There is a lot of fan service. But the, I noticed there's not any actual street fighting in the film. And it ends with a massive shootout, like a Roger Moore Bond movie. So I don't really... it. <laughs> <laughs> doesn't have anything to do with Street Fighter, so Chun Li is really cool. Uh, Ming Na Wen, who's now in Agents of Shield, is very sexy and very cool in this film. But as soon as the focus is off her, it's just boring. Raul Julia does have a lot of fun in it. I I gotta say I do remember this. This is one of the reasons I haven't seen it for a long time is because this was one of the first films because I love Street Fighter. I still do. Street Fighter 2. Um, got the music in my head now. Um, but then, like, I remember watching it as a kid, and whereas you watched, um, like, Double Dragon and stuff, it was like there was actually some fighting in it, and my love of here with Mark the Cascus began. I remember Street Fighter 2 being boring, and just thinking, oh, well, it's just, it's just the car- it's just the names. Yes. Like, the yeah, characters. Just, so, oh, I mean, Blank is awful. I mean, what is that? It's just a guy in... He looks like a half-made Hulk. Yeah, it's just it's literally like they've just put like a ginger wig on him and popped a load yeah. of green on his skin, and that's it. It is not as good as Double Dragon, which in itself isn't a particularly good film, but at least it has a vague sense of imagination. <laughs> and combined, they're not as good as the original Mortal Kombat, so just watch that. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's just really cheap looking, really bad. It, it doesn't even have that kind of weird, surreal charm of like something like Super Mario Brothers. Where it's like, in Super Mario Bros., it's like, I can't believe what's happening before my eyes. With Street Fighter, it's like, well, I can believe it because it's just really dull. And I've seen it all before. <laughs> yeah. it's, it's a win because 1994 is two years, two years after um, we said Jean-Claude Van Damme's, one of his biggest films, Universal Soldier. And it's the same year as Time Cop. Yeah. So it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's bad. You wonder why they make these ga- uh, films based on games because... You wonder who they're trying to please. Um, yeah. It's bizarre. It's all, but it's always been bizarre and always will be bizarre. <clears throat> um, okay. So, yeah, that's... Uh, oh, that yes, was it. You just... <laughs> you weren't even going to... No, uh, no, more, no more on Street Fighter. That was, that was the two-minute trashing. Bloody hell, okay. Yeah. Um, so we, I think we're going to make it, you know. Um, the Highwayman is a Netflix movie. Is this with, like, Woody Harrelson and someone? Woody Harrelson and... Kevin Costner. Kevin Costner, okay. They play the Texas Rangers who br- uh, they're brought in to kill Bonnie and Clyde. Um, it's set just after Bonnie and Clyde have um, arranged a breakout from a prison 
not of themselves but of the gang members and so it's like right enough's enough sort of thing so they they bring in these texas rangers texas rangers have actually been disbanded by this point uh because of their dubious tactics and that so but they're brought back in for this it's basically a slow atmospheric road movie about two old men mumbling and complaining about how many times they've been shot and then they shoot some people so this sounds fine though yeah that's absolutely fine yeah yeah they're at the top of their game Kef- costner is especially kind of commanding because he's apparently he's genuinely like this as well the guy uh, his name's frank hamer he's genuinely like quite an incredible like cop who apparently genuinely did kill shoot and kill more than 50 people in his career so he wasn't messing about um Although I'd say that it's not really that much of a stretch for either actor because they are basically just, they, they don't have to do much range apart from look at just a bit glum most of the time. Um, oh. It's directed by John Lee Hancock, who he makes these kind of quite handsome, pretty smart mid-budget movies. Who get, and he gets the best out of his actors. Uh, he also made um, The Founder with Michael Keaton and Saving Mr. Banks with Tom Hanks. Um, that rhymed. Um, <laughs> I I I've seen I've seen should this I, film. Should I, should I watch The Highwaymen? I think so. Yeah, I think okay. you'd enjoy it. I think it's just yeah. good to I see like those just actors. So. Yeah, I think it's just good to see two dudes kind of like like quite slowly making their way around Oklahoma and places. <laughs> is having is Kevin Costner in it better than he is in Mr. Brooks? Uh, he's quite different to what he is in Mr. Brooks. To be fair. I'm watching it then. Yeah, he's he's very grizzled. He's basically playing. Uh, no, I, I, I was going to say basically playing like the parts that Robert Duvall was playing like 10, 15 years ago. But Robert <laughs> Duvall always had a kind of bit of a cheeky sense of humor, didn't he? Whereas Kevin Costner is very, he's very serious in this. Um, and what's does does Kevin Costner laugh like Robert Duvall does, or does he? Not? No, he does not. <laughs> he doesn't do any of that. No. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I've I've seen The Highwayman dismissed as a kind of dad film, but I don't know. I think something like this, I think it harks back to the mid-budget dramas of the the nineteen nineties. Put simply, because they don't have a place in cinema anymore. These sorts of mid-budget films, uh, you know, con- you know, forty, fifty million maybe. Uh, and I'm happy for them to be on the small screen. You know, if it's it's just quite absorbing you get like the production design the kind of evocation of 30s deep south it's pretty cool um yeah and there's a lot about it does depict quite well how grim um like kind of life was for a lot of people living at that time because of course it would have been not long after the great depression or the late 20s so you can really see it in the way that people are living there's a really, really good scene, probably the best scene in the film, where uh, Kevin Costa's character meets uh, Clyde's father, who's played by William Sadler. Good. Good. Yeah, that's fine. Uh, and Time the VFW there. <laughs> yes. And they and they just kind of talk about um, kind of life choices and disappointment and things. And uh, and yeah, and yeah, they're discussing those... my cats, but. Okay. <laughs> I guess scenes like that are written for men of a certain age. So yeah, maybe it is a dad movie. I don't know, but it's it's good. I'm going to watch it. I am going to watch it. I would, to be honest, I was waiting for someone to that I knew to give it a 
you know, to give it a reference. So that's that's worked out quite well for me. Yeah, I wasn't sure about it at first, but it is definitely a slow burner. But you do get you kind of absorbed. Uh, and it's just interesting to see, apart from anything, sort of the Bonnie and Clyde story from a different perspective. Yeah, like, well, it's it really, really well... sensationalised. Like it is oh, right? yeah, massively. And it, I kind of wish it, we'd seen a bit more of that in the film because, as far as I know, they, they were very much glorified at the time by the press. But then it was a certain point where the press turned on them massively as well. But in the meantime, of course, you know, these cops were just working in the background and while all the attention was on the rock and roll kind of antics of Bonnie and Clyde they were just doing their job and got it done sort of thing uh, I would like to well because we don't often talk about Kevin Costner and yet we've done it twice in this podcast yes, we have. Um, I urge people to watch Mr Brooks and yes. The New Daughter because The New Daughter especially is could easily be dismissed as a as a generic horror <laughs> maybe it is but <laughs> kevin costner brings like a real gravitas to it uh so they're two films that i would suggest people watch don't think i've s- seen the new daughter it's got a buzzing scene in it that you will frown at you will whenever you see kevin costner putting something in a drawer and then and then frowning and then reopening the drawer get ready to frown <laughs> i'm hoping that it will be on one of our preferred streaming sites <laughs> um i've that's everything so i've got one more which is going to be is going to be a two minute trashing uh we're still under the two hour mark we're still going strong yeah we're still going strong this is uh just a last word about rambo last blood oh, which Jesus is on Prime christ Prime. i was going to watch this and i thought no it's not it's not <laughs> gonna be worry. fun Done it don't for you. do it thank you <laughs> uh it's not very good <laughs> 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 it, it looks like a TV show for a start, so that's not a good start. Um, the right, so the girl he's living on a ranch with uh, this Mexican lady who's very much her age, but he isn't with her because, of course, that doesn't happen in Hollywood. He has to be with a much younger woman. Anyway, um, yeah, so he is he lives on this ranch with his mother and her daughter, who he, he sees as a daughter to himself, sort of thing. But then, his, but then the one he fancies, his girlfriend, is actually played by Elizabeth Olsen, who is <laughs> 24. No, sorry, go on. Um, so... Uh, things happen. She is kidnapped by a drugs cartel. Uh, he is. He confronts the gang. He goes down to Mexico. Obviously, confronts the gang um, stupidly and just gets massively beaten up. Um, he's rescued and recuperated by this like bleeding heart local journalist who just happens to be investigating the gang and who happened uh, the gang who happened to kidnap and murder her sister as well. So it's like all very convenient um so yeah it's uh and then so she recuperates him and then he goes on the rampage basically uh and it all ends up with him basically sort of inviting them back to um back to the u.s to his ranch where it all goes a bit home alone at the end it is unimaginably violent like really yeah there's one bit where he he stabs someone, I think, and then sticks his finger into the into the hole that he's created and rips out their collarbone. It's horrendous. Loads of sh- head explosions. That seems 
really impractical. That's an impractical yes. way to attack someone to remove it's, their bones. <laughs> he's, <laughs> I guess, he's torturing them for information or something. Oh right, okay. Well, it's not like a fight. Um, is it deeply unpleasant towards the Mexican population as well? Well, this is the thing. I don't think. I don't think it's. It's not saying that all Mexicans are bad. Uh, but I would. So it's not. It's not death wish level. Of, it's just after of, watching Cobra and then yeah, yeah and then seeing him in uh, Bullet. Yeah, the head I, and I don't think yeah. it's saying that all Mexicans are bad. What? But it is definitely playing into the prejudices of, say, well, Trump supporters, frankly, and like because towards the end, the bit where, so the bit where he's basically just enticed them to come back to his place and and kick off. Like at that moment, there are some very conspicuous shots of the walls separating the US and Mexico saying, oh, remember these are two different worlds, guys. Um, so it's not saying that all Mexicans are bad because there are clearly nice Mexicans in it. But what it is saying, I think, is that uh, Mexicans are okay as long as they're civilized and they live in an American way. Put it that way. <laughs> when they, when you say that he... When you say that, don't, don't worry, it's still racist, Brit. Um, when you say he invites them around to like kick off, does he? Does he? Does it cut to the gang, like you know, like punching women and taking drugs and burning stuff? And then one of them gets a text, and they say, "Oh, it's off, it's off a of Jay Rambo." And it says, "Do you want to pop round? I haven't set any traps. I promise." And then there's a <laughs> winking gif. Yes, that's exactly how it happens. Yeah, I can imagine that. <laughs> uh. Yeah, and of course it ends with him going on about how war has scarred his soul and all that kind of crap. But, you know, at the end of the day, Rambo, you built a franchise on this, haven't you, really? <laughs> and your your war experience has actually come in very handy, it seems, across all these different films. So shouldn't be complaining too much. Yeah, across that one, two, three, four, five films? Yeah. So it's like, hmm. You'd think you'd just, like, think to himself... Oh, I'm used to it now, you know. It's actually, yeah. it's actually really saved, saved a few lives. I have been in some very, very specific and unusual situations where my military training has come in very handy. Yeah, I mean, really, if they wanted to continue what was set down in the original film, the whole point of which was that he was suffering PTSD, etc., then he would have got help and not had any more rampages really <laughs> it's um i remember the the last rambo film in like 2008 when it was released was about four minutes long how long is this one um i didn't feel that long no i think this is quite short as well to be honest i don't know it, it can't be any more than 90 minutes i'm sure it was hang on let me type it in let me type in those uh, sylvester stallone <laughs> uh, you just go off the page of the guardian um that I was looking at with Kevin Bricks plays a Coast Guard, obviously. Um, uh, was it? Selected filmography. Uh, when was it? The last Rambo film was. Christ, he's in a lot of films. Mostly Cap. Uh, Rambo, 2008, and it was. Oh, no, it was 90 minutes. I Ooh. remember it being really short. And this one is 89 minutes. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's cool. Yeah. For some reason, I had in my head it was like seventy minutes long, but I don't, I don't know where I got that from. Maybe it's just so exciting. <laughs> yeah, it was like a flash of flyby. It was a single strobe effect, and the film was over. I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> um, it's quite experimental. Um, 
Yeah, so I, like I said, I've had nothing for the last hour and a half. So <laughs> it's been nice listening to you talk. Um, but I mean, I, it's hard for me to choose a film film of the, of the week from Mike because I've had such um, brief sojourn with films. Let me have a look. So, Christ. Ocean's Eight, Eurovision Song Contest, Rock and Roller, Beyond the Gates, Cobra, or Firepower. Oh, what's my favourite of the week? <laughs> oh, God. Well, I probably just have to say Cobra because I like it's the one we had the most fun with. Beyond the Gate was good up to a point. I'd say Cobra was the one for me. Yeah. Dep- that's a depressing film of the week. <laughs> uh, I'm going to go with uh, I think Flight is very good. Uh, catch on Netflix. Uh, yeah, and it's as I say, grower not a shower. But I'd also mention Black Rainbow again because that was a very interesting, intriguing film, and I'd like to recommend it because it's the kind of film that could just slip out of existence almost because it's so kind of slight and forgotten. Can yeah. you also? I know Black Rainbow you just you recommended, but can you also just say the first two syllables and recommend that as well? What Black Black Rain, Rupert? With oh. Michael Douglas and Andy Garcia. Oh, I get what you're saying now. Yeah, you just have to say. I need to watch. I did actually look for Black Rain um, on streaming services, but it's, I have to pay for it. Pay. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I think I saw it once. I'd love to watch that again. It could be a film we need to watch together. To be honest, it's so important. It is uh, it such is a push moment in uh, '80s action films. I think I've only seen the cut version as well because it was on TV. So oh, the yeah. bit where someone who will remain nameless gets beheaded, um, you just don't see anything. It's like, it's just baffling what actually happened to him. Is it, does it just, it just cut, cuts to them. Someone like someone lifting a sword up and then it just cuts and they fall over. And then and Michael Doug's like, where's his head gone? What is his, <laughs> what is his head full of? He's forgetful. <laughs> He forgot to put his head on. Um, yeah, so yeah, Cobra and Flight. Yeah, two two tasty films. Yeah. Um, again, I've really got to like up my auntie and pick up some pick up some films this week. So, have you got any that you know? I've got to pick up my auntie from school. Yeah, she's been held back <laughs> several years. Um, so yeah, anything you've got that you know you're going to watch over the next week? That uh, anything at the post or? I don't think so. I think I'm pretty much bang up to date. I'll probably go a little bit easier on it this week, so I don't get a backlog. Um, oh, please don't let the the podcast like impinge on your film watching. I'm probably going to watch Rambo because I've seen them all, and it's like I may as well watch this last one as first like ninety minutes. Yeah, yeah. I'll. Uh... Oh, there'll be some gold between now and then, anyway. And we know there's going to be at least a U- one UE ball, so there you go. <laughs> yeah, that's going to keep us going for two hours. <laughs> right then, we've clocked in at one, one hour 58, so that's good timing. Thank you for picking up my slack, and uh, have an awesome evening, and I'll speak to you soon. And you. Love you. Bye for now. Love you. <laughs>